Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. And joining me is Mike Caps, the original and only voice of the AAA Round Rock Express going back to 2000 and the co-author with ex-Major League pitcher Chuck Hartenstein of the fascinating new book, Grinders, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry. Great to have you on the show, Mike. Well, it's great to be here. It's great to be on anything involved with the city of Houston. And, and you do such a great job. I've looked at a couple of your podcasts and, and I'm really excited to be here with you. Hey, man, I, I know you've got some roots in Houston and some great Astros connections. And we're going to get to it just a bit. But let's start with your book, Grinders. Explain the idea behind it, because I love the concept. This came about 60 some odd years ago at Old Burnett Field in downtown Dallas, where the old Dallas Fort Worth Rangers and the American Association played. My grandfather and I used to hang out there all the time. My grandfather was a Pirates prospect until he lost hearing in an ear, calling artillery fire in the Battle of the Argonne Forest. Uh, Pirates wanted to sign him. He had no balance when he came back. And so he just sort of channeled all of his baseball into me and my dad was huge in it as well not little league parents at all Robert it just here's a, a boy that really wants to learn about this game and we're going to teach him and they did we're sitting there one night at Burnett Field middle of the summertime blazing hot Minneapolis Millers the Red Sox affiliate playing the Dallas Fort Worth Rangers they were in in it was 1960 they were the Kansas City Athletics affiliate and he said, he pointed that everybody was doing uh, infield and outfield drills at that time. And he pointed to the left fielder and he said, you, that, that guy's going to be a star. Well, it was Carl Yastrzemski. I guess he was, you know, a Hall of Famer. But he had four or five check marks on both sides of his scorecard. And, and I said, what are the check marks about? And he said, well, it's very simple. You're going to see these guys in the big leagues your names in the box scores in the newspaper every day for two or three or four days, then they'll go away. They're going to be bouncing back and forth between AAA and the big leagues. He said, these are the guys that drives baseball's bus. Robert, that stuck with me forever. And in January of 2018, I woke up thinking about it, started writing down some notes. Chuck Hartenstein, the late Chuck Hartenstein was signed by my cousin, Billy Caps, who scouted for the Cubs for years and years. And I just took him on board and I said, I need, I need some help with this. I got a lot of names. Can you help me sift through them? Well, he did. We lost Chuck on the last day of the season in 2021. Um, and, but his name is going to be on every grinders book I write. And I think I probably got two or three more with all the, the, the stuff I've come across beautifully. His wife passed six months later. And so we've lost Karen. My wife and I have lost a huge part of our soul losing Hartenstein's, but uh, that's the way it came about. And, um, gosh, Robert, I finally, I finally found a publisher in Wimberley and this guy used to be the business writer for the Chronicle, Lauren Steffi's his name. And we went to work as his first sports title. He's excited about it. I'm excited about it. And we're already starting to get some returns from, uh, people like Tim Kirkjian. So we're, we're, we're pretty jacked up about what we've done here. Is there a player from the book with the connection back to the Astros or, or even here around Texas? Well, um, let's think about Jason Lane. Let's think about Deacon Jones, who was the hitting coach for the Astros. Tal Smith is deeply involved in this book. He he wrote the foreword to it, and he he helped advise me through this through thick and thin. And and Tal's been a great friend and mentor for gosh since 
all the way back in my days at channel two, I was friends with him. So it's, uh, it's, it's Houston centric. It's Rangers centric. There's like three profiles on Rangers, but at the end of the day, it's, it's about the guys themselves and not necessarily the teams because everybody's going to get a team, anybody who can sign anybody who's good enough. And then after that, it's, uh, it's all on the front offices. So it's, it's, but I'm just sitting here just trying not to get overly excited. And I've had two cups of coffee and I'm ready. I'm already ready to roll. Once you and I are done, I'm going out and working out. I got to get this uh, excitement out of me, man. Hey, who's the guy that you wrote about that really sticks with you? Maybe a story that keeps you up or kept you up at night as you were writing these stories down. Can I give you two? Sure. Um, one of them is Deacon Jones. Deacon Jones was a, a White Sox prospect during the Jim Crow South. He and uh, Don Buford played together on a team, and they're they're going through the back roads trying to get to the next stop uh, in the southeastern U.S. They all get out at a roadside cafe, and Don stayed on the bus, warned Deacon not to go in. Deacon had a shotgun pulled on him. And he was threatened and scared to death, gets back on the bus. He's all upset. He calls home, he, uh, was raised around Schenectady, New York. And he calls home and his dad picked, grabbed the phone from his mom and said, are you done crying? You're scared to death. He said, yes, sir. So let me tell you something. You are not to ever let any man, black, white, green, brown, get in the way of your dream. You have your dream. You live your dream. Deacon lived his dream. He played in the big leagues, played in in uh, in all throughout uh, the Caribbean, and ended up becoming the hitting coach for the Astros for several years. And he's a dear friend to this day. The other one that really strikes me is uh, is Jeff Fry, the, the second baseman for the Rangers, who played for the Red Sox and some other teams. Jeff was not much of a prospect, a little bitty guy. Grew a little bit once he got into college. Went to it, was invited to a Rangers tryout camp. And um, unfortunately for him, he'd been in a boat accident and sliced his his left hand. Yet he bandaged it, bandaged it up, put a rubber glove on top of that, and came out and hit a couple of home runs and impressed the scouts they actually stopped down that tryout camp because he was wincing every time he catch a catch a ball on his glove or every time he swung a bat. And the scout who uh, was running that camp said, "What what's going on with you?" He said, "Let me show you." He pulls off the glove and there's there's blood all in it. And the guy signed him, saying, "You know, you gotta you want to come out here and live your dream, and you're willing to bleed to do it." We really got to take you under our wing. And that's how he launched his major league career. And there's there's dozens of stories like this in, in, in this game. The, the links that athletes will go to, to to get it in gear, number one, and then to make it to the big leagues and, and stick, that's the other. Tell me a little bit more about your grandfather, because I know he was such a big inspiration to you. His story is pretty remarkable. Well, it is. Uh, he was raised in the Allegheny Mountains in Warren County, Pennsylvania, about 100 miles north of Pittsburgh. Was a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. It, 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 but this, we're talking about the 19 teens. And, you know, you get the 
Pittsburgh paper a day late. I mean, he kept up with it, played semi-professional baseball up there, and some uh, pirate scout saw him, and he said, uh, listen, we really like you. And he, my grandfather says, well, I got World War I commitments. He said, when you come back, come see us. Don't go home. Go, come right to Forbes Field, and we'll try you out. Well, I've already told you how the tryout went, but um, – this guy went on and worked in the oil industry in Texas, brought his wife down. They had my mom and my uncle while they were in Texas. And, and uh, he died at age 88, and there's not a day goes by that I don't think about him. My dad died when I was 17, a junior in high school. And my grandfather stepped up and went to every one of my high school sports events, every one of my college sports events, didn't miss one. That guy was remarkable, and he was such a peaceful soul. You had to pull things out of him, and it was one of those gifts from God. This is the only way you can talk about who my grandfather was in my life. You mentioned your high school baseball career, and I, I'm going to connect it right back to that because Grinders, actually your second book, your first one about the legendary scout Red Murph, who was the guy who discovered Nolan Ryan, not only – did Merv scout Nolan? He also scouted a high school baseball player named Mike Caps, who ended up playing a little juco ball in Hillsboro, Texas, which right. is actually where my grandfather was born and where we buried him 13 years ago. So I am familiar with Hillsboro. What do you remember about being scouted by Red Merv? Well, I don't remember much. And Red, Red reminded me of this stuff. Um, I had hit two doubles in a game against uh, a right-handed pitcher that Red later told me was the second fastest pitcher he saw in Texas uh, up until that time. And uh, the guy never made it, whatever. But but um, so I remember seeing Red at games, but I don't remember much else. That, that, first, that first game that he saw, I was actually a sophomore. And um, I'd already had some – uh, had a chance to be the varsity quarterback starter, and, but I ended up having six concussions and that ended that. Well, um, I get a call from him in, in uh, May of 1969, my senior year in high school to come to this trial camp in Brenham. It was, and, and it was guys from all over the state. It wasn't one of those mass call tryouts that they have. Sometimes this was a pretty select group of people. And I ran very fast uh, up first base in sixties for him. And, uh, but he wouldn't let me hit Robert. He wouldn't let me hit. And it really, really pissed me off. And, uh, I sat there for an hour and a half and, and finally, uh, I made an obscene gesture and I left and 30 years later, 20 years later, wherever it was when Nolan was coming to the Rangers, I was doing uh, a documentary on Nolan. And I remembered red had been the scout who signed him. So I called him up on the phone in Brenham and I said, Hey, um, here I am here. Here's who I am. Uh, are you going to be where we could interview you for this documentary? He said, well, I'm going to be in Arlington tomorrow. So we met at this ballpark. I'm sitting across from him and he reaches over and punches me, my chest. And he said, you're the dumbest SOB I ever met in my life. Now, by this time, I, I was working at, at WFAA in Dallas and we had busted the SMU football program. And I was, involved in a big part of that and and i'm saying excuse me and he says uh, may the 29th 1969 fireman's park brenham texas 238s to first two six four sixties yes sir he says 
what you didn't know. We left you way down the right field line by yourself. We didn't want anybody else to see you were there. He said, I hadn't seen any other scouts there. He said, what we were going to try to do was sign you to a free agent contract after the draft and send you out to see if those legs would play. And so now, now I'm feeling now I'm now I'm feeling really terrible, right? And and he said, but there's a second reason you're the dumbest SOB. I said, there really have to be two? Are you kidding me? He said, yeah, there were twelve Division One college coaches wondering where you went. And so, but you know, I, I'm 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 a believer, and I believe that um, things happen for a reason. He goes into his pocketbook, hands me a scouts card, and I work part time for him for seven or eight years, help him run off tryout camps. And then when I quit CNN, uh, I called him up and I said, you and I are going to write a book. And we did. And that's what got me back into baseball. And uh, we're out promoting that book in spring training in 96, <clears throat> Angels Tryout, uh, Angels Camp in, in Arizona. And Bob Starr, the legendary late broadcaster for the Angels, is interviewing Red about the book. And I keep hearing this voice. You can do this. You can do this. So in between innings, I say to him, I'm 45 years old. Am I too old to get started in this? He says, you're a puppy. Two phone calls later, Robert, I get a job as the radio broadcaster for the Texas-Louisiana League's Tyler Wildcatters. And that's how I got started. That's how the whole that whole thing happened. I want to spin it back to Nolan. Uh, an incredible story because, you know, I've got – I don't know if you can see it over my shoulder, but I've got a Nolan Ryan signed baseball. I've got this Nolan Ryan uh, program. He was my hero growing up like a ton of people. I just saw the Nolan documentary in a theater a few weeks ago. You've worked for a team that Nolan's been so much a part of over the years. Can you give us your favorite Nolan Ryan story? Nolan Ryan story. Uh, Yes, I can. As a matter of fact, in 2003, we had a very poor double-A team. It was our uh, 2001 two, fourth year in the Texas League. 20 and 50 at the end of the first half. So I'm walking out of the uh, out of the press box and out across the parking lot into my car, and Ruth and Nolan were walking out as well. And Ruth hollers, Mike, Mike. So I stopped and went over, and I'm grinning at them, and they're grinning at me. And Nolan comes up, and he puts his arm around my shoulder, Ruth puts her arm around my waist and Nolan says, Mike, I don't know who has a worse job. Jackie Moore trying to manage that. Are you trying to talk about it? (laughs) And you know what? It's he's, he's such, um, he's such a wonderful guy. He's low key. We don't see him that much. And I think that's by his preference, but golly, what a presence when he's around. Yeah, I mean, just uh, the thing that you just don't see a whole lot, which you get to see a little bit more of, we don't see a whole lot of Nolan's sense of humor. He, he doesn't show it a lot in the in his commercials. He never really showed it much as a player, but it's there. I, I know it's there, and and uh, you, I'm sure you're also very connected with uh, his son, Reed, who uh, with was with the Astros for a few years, and we loved him here, and it was just such an important guy to have around when the Astros were trying to reconnect with the, with the entire community in Houston. Well, let me, let me, let me take it a, a generation further. Reed's son, Jackson is finishing up at Mary Harden Baylor. And this summer he is working as a scouting intern for the Kansas city Royals. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that a better baseball mind exists in the country than Jackson Ryan at age 21. 
this kid is going to be something. He can analyze players like nobody's business. He sounds more like a, a 15 to 20 year veteran scout. When you stop and think about it, he also pitched D3 with cerebral palsy. Now that's, you just, how the heck did that happen? Well, he's, he's the closer in this book grinders because of that very reason, but also because of this baseball mind. I mean, he'll, he'll come in the booth when he has a scouting assignment at Dell diamond and he'll go through chapter and verse. And I'm, I'm working on pregame stuff, right? Well, it's amazing. Uh, things that I see, he, he not only sees them, but he can take you into the depths of why they are the way they are and why a certain player plays the way he plays. And, uh, are they using him the right way? Is he, what's, what's, how does, where does he top out? And, and Jackson's mind is constantly working and his supervisor is a special assistant to the uh, Kansas city Royals uh, president. His name is Gene Watson. He says, you know, I do baseball every day, every day. He said, I have to take some breaks. I have to take some mental breaks. He said, I don't think Jackson ever takes a mental break. And you know what? This is this this to me is like uh, the scouting version of who Nolan was as a young pitcher. If you follow my if you follow my drift, I mean, I think Jackson has that ability, the God given ability uh, in his realm of baseball that Nolan had in his, and that Reed has in the business end of it, and the and the combination of knowing how to work the business side with the player personnel side. I mean, Reed was a savant at that, and it still is. And Jackson's a savant. And then Nolan, we already know about that. That's that's given. I mean, you, greatest pitcher of all time had to be. But it, what and what a family. And they're just so much fun to be around. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, I'm sure, for you to, to just be a part of all that. Absolutely. And, and the Round Rock Express – you know, people know here that they were an Astros affiliate back in 2000. When you first started your inaugural right. season, tell our listeners who was on the inaugural Round Rock Express team. Well, let's see. The names you'll remember. Let's start with Roy Oswalt. Uh, let's go to Morgan Ensberg, Keith Ginner. Morgan and Keith were called up uh, to the Astros in mid-September of 2000, the night we won the Texas League Championship in front of 11,000 people on the third Texas high school football night. That's just, it, for, for that to have that, that many people show up to a professional baseball game was just, I can't quantify it. I mean, and I could see from my spot in the press box all the way down Highway 79, almost to Hutto, cars lined up trying to get in. It couldn't get in. I mean, if we'd had space for 20,000, we'd have had 20,000 there that night. There was that much enthusiasm for that team. And you know what? Uh, I still have contact with all those guys. Uh, just great kids. Temper Pura is still a, a dear friend, was the general manager. Um, and it's, gosh, such great memories. Tell us about Roy. What, what do you remember about him that year? I remember that we were stumbling a little bit. Uh, San Antonio was the Dodgers in those days, and they were salty. Well, Roy gets a quote-unquote one-time visit to AA, and he dominates that San Antonio team 
and they were for double A hitters. They were excellent. And Roy struck out fifteen, and Tempura was there that night. And they're they're talking about putting him back on a plane, Roy back on a plane to Kissimmee, back to A ball. And Jackie Moore was the manager, and Jackie was you know bench coach there for the Astros and in Arlington and Cincinnati and other places. And they're saying to Papura, don't send him. This is, this guy needs to be here. He needs to be. Well, he stayed. And, and uh, that was to me, the turning point in that season, because it was going to be a battle for us to win the first half championship. As long as San Antonio was dominating us. And it seemed like Roy pitched in every, every San Antonio series and just shut them down. And we ended up winning the first half. And uh, El Paso won the second half. We beat them out and out. I'm in El Paso now getting ready to do a game. So funny how these things turn around. But uh, in 11 innings, we win against El Paso. Colin Porter hit a homer over the center field wall in the old ballpark, then made a diving catch with runners at second and third for the final out to win it. We went on to Wichita and then back to Round Rock. And that was the Texas League Championship year of 2000. And people just went nuts. The celebration on the field after that game, Robert, was incredible. People stayed around at 1.32 in the morning just talking. Everybody wanted to talk. Everybody was awash in that. And and the Astros played right along with it and understood. I mean, there hadn't been professional baseball in the Austin area since 1967. So you know they were hungry for it. And uh, it was it was quite a year. What's the percentage of Astros fans compared to Texas Rangers fans in that area? Just out of curiosity with both teams playing for those. You know, here's what's happened, in my opinion. I would have said at one time it's it's 48-52 Astros. But you got to remember, Austin wasn't a million people when we came to, to Central Texas. Austin was like 750, 800,000. Well, it's, it's the city itself's banging on the door, 2 million right now. And that entire area is huge. And, and double. a lot of people from California and we've got, I mean, we've got A's fans, we've got Dodgers fans, we've got all sorts of people who are coming to our place. Uh, unfortunately, major league baseball took the Cubs away from us, put them over in, in the international league, the same for the Royals though. They were big, but the bottom line is, the fan base, I think, and the my bosses may disagree with me. I think it's dispersed. I think as long as we have a 10-year deal with the Rangers, we'll see a lot of Rangers fans. If we ever go back to the – who knows? Who knows how this any of this works out anymore now that Major League Baseball has taken over what we do. But uh, I'd say if, if – if anything, it's probably a 50-50 split, but there's more that, that there's more to it. It may not, may, not, may not be quite that high because simply because the population base has stand out so much. Before you got into baseball, you had this whole other career, which is it's worth a whole other hour where you worked for ABC News and CNN. But even before that, you spent the 80s covering 16 space shuttle missions and Hurricane Alicia for WFAA in Dallas, if I got all that correct. But you, you go back to Houston in the 70s, and you were working at what station? At KPRC-TV, Channel 2. Uh, we drove around in those orange uh, Mustang Fastback uh, with police interceptor engines, way too much engine, for the, but we were racing to cop news. 
And that's what I did. I covered police news and I still have dear friends who were police officers in those days. And they can't believe I survived that because of all of, Oh, I, I went to the hospital five times in six months, varying injuries on varying crazy news stories. I hit my car once and I mean, on and on it goes, but what beautiful years. Ray Miller was a tremendous news director there forever and ever. And, um, just challenged us every single day. And I just have such beautiful memories of those days, even though, uh, you know, I got shot at uh, covering drug raids and the whole thing was wild, wild West times mock. And, but, but for a young guy, I went to, I I came to channel two, let's see, 70, 23 years old as a police beat reporter. Now that's, that's awfully, awfully young for a job like that. But, it sure worked out and working on the police beat is quintessential in the dirt mono a mono reporting. It just is. And it's just, you never know what's going to happen from one moment to the next. And, and sometimes, I mean, I can remember being up two days at a time, just chasing the same kind of story. It's just, uh, but it was amazing place to be. Houston was in that big burst where you'd, drive through the freeways around the freeways and you'd see license plates from 17, 18 States folks flocking to Houston because of the growth. And it was just an exciting time to be in Houston. Two of my three daughters were born at what was called women's hospital in those days. Uh, they love their Houston roots to this day and uh, are, are thankful that they were born where they were born. And it's just, I have such sweet, wonderful memories of Houston. I, I kind of, dwell on this a little bit because it, it to me it's just this time and this era that I can't explain to people so I try to get some of my guests to and I've had on a few of the Houston Oilers from that era oh my. what was it like to be here and explain to people if you can what love you blue was because you were that was happening in your last few years in, in Houston yeah and you know what it was so much fun and uh, I didn't have any role in covering any of that, but but you had Bum Phillips. And when you had Bum Phillips, that set the stage for everything. You added Carl Mock, and you added Dan Pastorini, and you added Kenny Burroughs, and you added all the wildness that went on at, at Oilers games. Earl Campbell comes along and begins to bulldoze people. And that's that's how love you blue to me was born. Uh, just being an ancillary guy on, on the fringes of it, following it, but I'm not sure that, um, and having lived in Dallas, Fort worth and, and seeing the Cowboys, you talk about a 180 difference, the Houston Oilers to me, it broke my heart when they moved to, to Nashville because the Houston Oilers to me were, um, sort of like the Pittsburgh Steelers South. The fans were so rabid and so intense and loved them so much. And that, to me, that's where the love you blue came from. Just the love they had. It was, it was, it was such a mind altering time anyway. And to see this, it, it just blew up and, and, you know, the Astros were around and, Larry Durker was pitching for the Astros in those days and he and I are still friends and the whole bit, but it was, but love you blue was special simply because of the passion and fire and verve that, that bump Phillips brought to everybody. 
And Bum Phillips loved that place, loved those players, each and every one of them. And you could tell when he talked about them. He just was – Bum Phillips is one of those kind of guys that we need more of in this country now. Just honest, honest from here out. And and what a breath of fresh air he was. Every single time he talked to him. Did you own a, a cow, set of cowboy boots and a, and a cowboy hat at that period of time? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. And you know what's funny? You bring that up. I did my 3,000th game in April for Round Rock. And one of the things they gave me uh, is a custom pair of Lucchese Roper boots that has the interlocking red and white double R's on the front of the boots. And they're, they're in the process of making those. So, yeah, you know, and my dad was uh, uh, the oddest combination of cattle rancher and undertaker you ever saw. But he, his passion in life was his cattle ranch. And so I was raised, raised in the cattle pens and my brother's still in that business. I never got into it, but yeah, yeah. I can wear cowboy boots and jeans with anybody. And you caught the early years of Ron Stone and Doug Johnson and all. And, and it's hard to explain for, again, for, for younger people that that was a news team that had this just really deep connection. I mean, I grew up with the muscular dystrophy telethon and those guys and what they did for that. But part that was all part of it. They, they, they really connected with this place and it was a big, small town back then. That is a perfect, perfect description. A big, small town. Robert, uh, Ron Stone, Larry Rasco, Doug Johnson, Bill Worrell, all those guys were involved deeply in, in the very essence of that community. They, they could, they could, run with the oil people. They could run with the rich people. They could run with the Cowboys at, at, at the, uh, at the Astrodome during, during rodeo time. They just knew how to relate to people. And it's such a different era in television news. Now I'm not saying that there aren't great people doing great things. I'm just saying this was a more down on the level of people kind of news coverage and, and, it just was a different era. I don't know any other way to explain it, except that I think we've evolved out of that now somewhat. Just no more TV news than I see all over the country. Real quick, last thing. So you left, I believe, in 1980, right? Correct. Correct. So it was that was right around the time that uh, Urban Cowboy came out and Gillies was just was blowing up. And and I grew up in Sharpstown. And tell me, do you remember this at all? So I I was reading in the Chronicle that John Travolta went to a premiere of Urban Cowboy at Sharpstown, at the old Sharpstown Mall. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Now, he did that. The guy who was running the newsroom in 80 fired 17 of us, like within 10 days. I had two little kids, uh, three little kids at that time and was, you know, sort of pulled in a lot of different directions, but, but I do remember that. And, and it did, it did make a splash and quite a big splash. Gillies itself was a whole different trip. And you could, you know, if, if you didn't walk in there with the right look on your face, you could get into trouble really quick. <laughs> just saying. But what a trip. I mean, it was just a blast. Yeah. It was an incredible time. I wish I was older to really understand the experience a little bit, but Man, between your baseball career and your news career, 
we can do a whole other hour, but I know you got some baseball games to call and, and, and you're going to go work out. And if our listeners want a great summer baseball read, the book is Grinders, Baseball's Intrepid Infantry. I'll put a link to it in the show description. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for giving us a few minutes today, Mike. Let me tell you, Robert, anytime you want me, I'm here, bud. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you.